today. All right, here we go. Um, we're going to be talking about unleash how God wants to unleash something in all of us and in our church. And today I want to focus on 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, which says, For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Let's just pray. Holy Spirit, come speak to us today. I know that there are things that you want uh, to bring conviction, revelation to in each and every single one of us. So God, we open ourselves to allow you to speak, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Has anyone ever had a crisis of faith before? Anyone? Everyone? Everyone at some stage will probably have some sort of crisis of faith. And I had one uh, many, many years ago uh, as a young man. And if I was to tell you why uh, or what sparked this crisis of faith is a little bit embarrassing and it sounds really juvenile, but that's because I was juvenile. So just hold that in mind. It is not a recent crisis of faith. It is an ancient, for me, uh, crisis of faith. I went into a crisis of faith because I was dumped. All right? Simple, easy. I was in a relationship one moment, and I thought it was going well. I thought we were progressing uh, perfectly. And then the next minute, I had a conversation with my then-girlfriend who said, we're going in different directions, and so let's just go in different directions. God um, is no longer <laughs> holding this relationship together, as you will. And so um, it, it broke my heart. But even more importantly for me, it broke what? I had as my faith at that time. In fact, I was already on staff at my previous church. I was um, thinking and loving the, the life of a pastor, but this situation uh, put a, a huge amount of doubt in my mind as to what I was believing and who God is. And through this period, I had this massive crisis of faith because I had a shattering of what I understood faith to be. It took me a little while, but after I kind of sat with this and went through a lot of emotions, I started to recognize that part of the issue that I was going through is that I believe that faith was defined as this, that if I did the right things, God would do the good things for me. That's what I thought faith was, that if I was to do the things that God has said in His Word, and to do them right, then I would not suffer, I would have success, and I would have the good things in life. And at that point in time, as a 21-year-old man, I thought that the best thing that could happen to me was to have this relationship. This relationship wasn't the icing on the cake. That relationship was my cake. And God took that cake and threw it on the ground. So do you see why I had a crisis of faith? Because I was thinking that that was the good thing that God was supposed to give to me. And when that thing was no longer mine, and that thing was no longer in my grasp, I thought, what's the point 
of faith. And you might have a similar situation um, where something goes terribly wrong, where something uh, happens that causes you to question, what is it about God that I actually believe in? I have sat with many people and some of them recognize that there must be some kind of creator, but I think that God hasn't done anything good in my life and therefore he's a distant God and there's no need for me to do much with that relationship. I've sat with other people that thought that not only is God distant, but He is maybe even cruel and, 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 and not very nice. Why would I want to worship a God like that? I have many different uh, questions uh, that people were posed to me, but I had that moment in my life where something took place that caused me to question and caused me to, uh, to reflect and caused me to doubt what faith is supposed to be. And as a person who's grown up in a Christian home and gone to church my whole life, I kind of saw that faith was something that was central to this whole thing of Christianity. I mean, I understood uh, that, that Paul writes in Ephesians 2 verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. I understood that it's God's grace, but it's also my faith that brings my salvation uh, uh, to me. And then in Romans 1 verse 17, it says, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And we also hear Paul saying that the great three things that will remain is faith, hope, and love. And so I was thinking to myself, I don't know if I have any more faith to give God. That was the situation I was in. Have you ever thought about this? Why am I in this space with God? Why am I in this relationship with God? What am I supposed to be doing? How am I supposed to uh, be being, if you will? What is it like to have faith in God? What does it represent? What does it mean? And so as I was going through this crisis of faith and I started to recognize that faith isn't that God is good to me if I do the right things, and so it made me a little bit scared because it kind of felt like it didn't matter what I did, bad things could happen. And so I was kind of going, then why do I try to do the good things? Anyone asked these questions before? I, I actually hope that you have because what is the substance of your faith? And I was already on staff, as I mentioned, I, I was thinking I wanted to be a pastor, and then in that moment I went like, but if I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to kind of be a representation or an example of faith. And right now, I'm not feeling very faith-filled or even faithful towards God. And it caused me to go, what is it that I'm placing my faith in? What does it mean to have faith in God? And I started to read the Bible. At that point in time in my life, I actually read through the Bible a number of times through, but it, it was like in this season, I was actually open to what the Bible was saying, and I started to read through, I started to find passages about faith and about hope in particular. Those were the things that I was trying to wrap my head around, wrap my heart around, and, and I was saying, God, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this well, I'm going to do this right. I'm not just going to say, I have faith, I have hope. You know, there's something in our Western world where faith and hope somehow really just looks like being positive and optimistic about everything. And I started to realize that that's not what faith looks like. That's not what hope looks like. So what does it actually look like? And I came across a couple of passages 
that I had to chew on for quite a long time. The first one is in Romans 4, verses 18 to 22. And this is about Abraham. We heard a little bit about him a few moments ago. It says, In hope Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Yep, if I was 100, I wouldn't think that I'm having a kid soon. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So I read this passage, and the first line um, stood out to me and um, didn't make much sense to me. Because it says, Paul writes that in hope, Abraham believed against hope. Let me say that again. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. What does it mean that Abraham had hope and he was kind of like betting against hope? And in my juvenile mind, in the situation that I was going through, I was thinking that basically Abraham was hoping for impossible things. That's what it seems to be saying, right? That faith, that hope is basically all about kind of betting that you are going to have this impossible thing. And so in my mind, in the situation I was in, I was greatly encouraged because I thought this relationship is actually impossible to reconcile. And so God is telling me that to be a faithful person, I needed to hope for the reconciliation of this particular relationship. You guys are allowed to laugh. You're very quiet, and it's not right. You're meant to enjoy this message, but also maybe interact and, and kind of go, yeah, hang on. Or maybe you're quiet because it's challenging because you've thought about that yourself. You thought about that impossible situation that you're faced with, and you go, being faithful means that I'm going to hope against the hope that has been presented to me. Maybe you've got a physical situation. Maybe you're listening to this over the podcast, and you've got a medical situation, and a doctor has told you that this is going to result in something that is quite terrible, and there is no cure for it. And you go, well, you see how Abraham hoped against hope. So what it means to be a faithful Christian is that I hope that that situation is going to be turned around, and you consider yourself faithful because of that. Is that what this is teaching? I thought it was. I began to, for a little while, begin to hope against hope. <laughs> this, uh, my ex-girlfriend was telling me that there was no hope of us getting back together. I said, that's great that you're telling me that because now I get to hope against hope and I get to be faithful. Until I read a few chapters later in Romans chapter 8, verse 24, and now Paul writes, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? And I was like, I do. I hope for what I don't see. In fact, oh, oh, sorry, I hope for what I see. I see, I saw this, my ex-girlfriend. In fact, we saw each other at church uh, for, for uh, every week. And I was like, see? And so this kind of created a little bit of dissonance for me. I was trying to hope against hope. But then now I was being told that I needed to hope for what I could not see. And I was like, so... God, were you telling me that to be a faithful Christian, I could hope for the things that were impossible that I desired, but then now you're telling me that hope that is seen is not hope at all, as though the things that I can't see isn't really what you're asking me to hope for. 
It confused me greatly. I, I, I have to admit this. I, I, I chewed on this for literally weeks. I was going, what am I supposed to hope for? What is the substance of my faith? Because I also read in Hebrews chapter 11 that uh, faith is the substance of things unseen, the things hoped for. Faith and hope have this link together. What I'm hoping for is what I'm putting my faith in. And so I did not know what I was supposed to hope for. Was I supposed to hope for the restoration of this relationship? Was I supposed to hope for something better? I had many well-meaning Christians and well-meaning friends who were some telling me that, oh, you two are perfect and you get back together. Other people were telling me that there's more fish in the sea. Other people were, were telling me stuff that was like you just need to learn how to move on and I was confused and I was like going God what is it that I'm supposed to be hoping for what am I supposed to be hoping in and I started to realize how wrong I had been in this journey see the starting point for me in this whole situation was what I wanted and I was hoping for what I wanted and when I started to look at Romans chapter 4, verse 18, in hope Abraham believed against hope, I started to realize that what Abraham was hoping for wasn't something that he so much had desired, but there's something that God had given to him, a promise, his word. You see, many times we are hoping for things that God has never spoken to us about. I remember a number of years ago when we were trying to sell our house, I got very disappointed in God because the house wasn't selling. And I remember that Beck and I had set some time aside, we will pray about this and we will pray about a number uh, to sell our house for, etc. And we were trying to be all faithful in that. And when the house wasn't selling, I was starting to question myself. I was like, God, didn't you give me your word? And I was like, no, he didn't. I heard my heart loud and strong. I wanted to have lots of money. And I rationalized it as saying that that money would go towards kingdom work. But God hadn't spoken to me. There are many times that we get so frustrated with God when he's never told us that he's going to do that. So Abraham hoped against hope. He hoped against the physical, earthly situation because he had a different kind of hope. He had a heavenly hope. He had a hope that came from God because God had spoken. And if you know Abraham's story, there were at least three occasions that God uh, reaffirms his promise towards Abraham. He spoke into what Abraham's future was going to be. And so, even though the situation looks a certain way, when we have the word from God that describes what is going to happen, we can hope against hope. And so, when it comes to Romans chapter 8, for in this hope we were saved, now hope that the scene is not hope. Again, we have to come back to what Paul is trying to say. He's trying to say that you are meant for a different kind of life, not just an earthly kind of a life. Our hope is not meant to be about things in this earthly realm alone, even though sometimes that is a part of it. We are meant to be living our lives based on what God has said about each and every single one of us. So when we are trying to be faithful people, when we're trying to be hopeful people, this is the greatest thing that you could be pouring yourself into because every single one of these words will not fall to the ground until it's accomplished. That's what God has said. If I want to be a hopeful person, I need to know what to hope on. If I want to be a faithful person, I need to know what my faith is in. This is the introduction to the message that took 20 minutes to get to so far. And I wanted to bring this to us because what I'm going to share with us requires us to have a bit of a mindset shift. 
Because I'm not teaching us as a church, as people of God, to simply just wish for nice things. That's not what this is about. The year of unleashed is not that God's going to unleash the storehouses of heaven and you're going to get a million dollars or you're going to get that Lamborghini that you've been hoping for, you're going to get that job that you've been wishing for, or that there's a restoration of a relationship that you're hoping for. No, no, no. The unleashedness comes back down to what God is wanting to do. Psalm 119 verse 68 gives us this really important verse where the psalmist who's been writing this extremely long poem if you know your Bible, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the whole Bible, and it's an acrostic poem, and it's all about God's Word. It's about how we interact with God's Word. It's about loving God's law, and this is what the person writes. This is what the, the poet writes. He's, he writes, you are good, and you do good, and then the next line says, so teach me your statutes. See, the thing about Hebrew poetry is not that it rhymes in, uh, in a sound, but it rhymes in its thought. The process of writing this is that every line is either a comparison or is a reflection of one another. So when the psalmist writes, you do good, you are good and you do good, and it says, teach me your statutes, what the psalmist is saying is that, God, I know that there's nothing good in this world except what you are doing and you're accomplishing, so the only way to live is to live under God's law. If you think that Christianity is a lawless religion, you are hopelessly wrong. And I use the word hopelessly in this sense, in, in the sense that you are hoping on the wrong things. God isn't setting you free to be lawless. He's setting you free to the life that He's established and He's, he's uh, set up for each and every single one of us according to His ways. And the only way we can enter into that life is that if we understand and that we hope that God is good and that He does good. And even when the situation that we are faced with and that we are currently walking through isn't good, we know that God is still able to do good in the midst of that situation. I've been reading this book at the moment and it's talking about the scandal of the cross. In no other religion is there a sense that God would suffer on behalf of His people. And the central point of our Bible is that Christ suffered and this is the clincher, so we know how to suffer. Jesus says that you take up your cross daily and follow him. Paul echoes that thought where he says, where he writes, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's saying suffering is necessary, especially if you're going to be a faithful, hopeful person. And so with all of that in mind, let's come back to the verse that I started off with in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. It says, For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. See, Jesus taught us uh, um, that when He dies, He would send the Holy Spirit to us. And Paul takes that and he echoes that and he says, and this is what the Spirit does. He gives you power, love, and self-discipline, but he contrasts it with this word timid. The Spirit does not make us timid. And I'm going to borrow that language with something that God has put on my heart for us this year. I have started to understand that the enemy of faith is in fear and it is in doubt. 
but it is timidity. You see, when I was going through my crisis of faith, as I call it, there was a lot of doubt and there was a lot of fear, but I recognized that God was still pursuing me and He had His hand on me and He was drawing me deeper into His Word and into how He was in, at work in my life. Really, it was a crisis of faith, but the faith was still there. The issue in our life is not whether we have doubts and fear in our life, but it's what we choose to do about what we believe. See, get, let me give you an analogy. If you, would take, uh, if you were to take a flight um, because you needed to go somewhere, you would be exercising faith in the sense that you would be exercising faith in the engineers that build that aircraft because even one small mistake could mean your death. The engineers that upkeep that machine, they would need to check every single component and ensure that it's still up to standard. I mean, sometimes it scares me the number of times that we read in the news about flights getting grounded because something was discovered. I was like, why didn't they discover it earlier? It kind of freaks me out a little bit, right? There are things that could go wrong. You could have a pilot that has an error on the day. He might have a, a completely clear uh, uh, record of, of, of all the number of flights he has taken, but what if he has a bad day? What if, for some reason, he has an aneurysm in his brain and he didn't even know about it and it causes him to black out and go, Whoop, and you're gone? It could happen, right? That's the idea of doubt. The fact that doubt exists is because there is the possibility that things could happen that you are hoping is not going to happen. When I come every single Sunday, I doubt that people are going to rock up. It's true. You could choose not to be here. I don't control any single one of you guys, and I could rock up to church one day and have no one. There is doubt, and there is fear that is associated with that doubt. Because I'll be doubting my position as a pastor if I am leading a church where no one rocks up. There is fear associated with stepping onto that plane when you, when you, when you start to think about it. And it's like the engineers, the wear and tear, uh, the, the pilot. Or maybe there's a flippant terrorist that decided to get on your flight. You don't have any choice in that. Am I just making everyone scared of jumping on the planes now? I'm just listing things out that could go wrong. But here's what happens. I either step in faith onto that plane or I step off that plane because of timidity. Fear is not what... What was I trying to say? Fear is not a challenge. Fear is not the opposite of our faith because when we take steps of faith, fear is right there. But when we listen to that fear and we listen to that doubt, when we are wise in our own eyes and we step back because we say the risk is too high, I'm calling that timidity. And I want you to just take a moment and reflect on your life. Are you taking steps of faith where God has spoken, not what you desire, that was the whole introduction. I'm not just saying that, 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 that it's faithful to go buy the Powerball after this because you are hoping against hope. No. If God tells you to do so, then sure, give that a go. But I'm talking about the things that God has said, especially in His Word. And if God has said to you 
This is what your life is meant to be like. These are the things that you're meant to be doing. Every time you say no to it, you're stepping out into timidity. And can I even say this? You are sinning. Because every time we do not do what God is telling us to do, we are disobeying Him, and by that definition, it means that we are sinful. Timidity is sinful, and that's why it has no place in us where the Spirit of God is. The Spirit helps us to understand, yes, that situation is possibly quite scary, that situation is quite impossible, but because God has said, I'm willing to step out into it. The number of people that have asked me as a pastor, as a church planter, this church has been going for eight and a half years, but when it first started and people go, I could never do what you're doing, I say, please don't unless God has told you. But because God has told me, he confirmed it with three different prophetic words, we needed to do this. In fact, if I didn't do this, I would probably be like dying I would be in my previous church going, God, I need to be doing these things that you've called me to. Some of us are literally dying because we're not in the life that God has given to us. Because you're disobeying His Word. Your timidity has taken a hold of your heart where there's meant to be faith. And so when we're talking about unleashed this year, we're talking about unleashing ourselves from things like timidity, things that stop us from taking the steps that we are meant to. In this current day and age, there are so many things that are causing us to be timid. The cost of living, the kind of job that I'm going to get, the kind of lifestyle I'm going to have. Am I going to have enough vacations to look like I'm having a good life? I need to be on this diet. I need to be on that diet. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things except when they become the focus of our lives rather than the things that God has told us to. Timidity doesn't always feel like fear. Timidity sometimes just feels like distraction. We procrastinate by watching enough Netflix to dull our souls and to dull our senses from what God is trying to say. Let me show you something. And this is what tonight is all about, by the way. In that passage about what the Spirit of God does, let me read to you the whole thing. 1 Timothy 2, sorry, 2 Timothy 1, verses 3 to 8. I'm going to skip a little bit. But Paul writes about Timothy. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded, now lives in you. Can I just, as a short aside, parents, you can have faith that you pass on to your kids. You can show them where the Word of God says and therefore why you believe. That is how you pass your faith on. Why do you believe? If your kid asks you a question, take a moment and try to answer it. Figure it out. Ask someone else. Sam is starting to ask questions about his faith. And sometimes it's scary because you're like, flip, if I get this wrong, this is what this kid's going to believe. And so I take it as a very sincere, a very genuine uh, um, challenge to ensure that I have the words to be able to give to... Sam this morning, he was listening to a song and he said, why does Jesus need to wash me? He's four and a bit years old and he's probably thinking literally about the sand and the grub that he has on his body and he's thinking about, I got a dad, why do I need Jesus? But it was an opening to talk about faith, but what Jesus does is exceptional, is amazing. I'm not going to pass it anyway. But Timothy has faith. Paul is absolutely sure of it and he says, for this reason, 
for this reason. What's the reason you have faith? For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Did you catch that? There is a gift that God wanted to give to Timothy, but it was given through an impartation uh, through the laying on of hands by Paul. God calls us into a community to worship, to pray together, to pray for each other. And part of it is that there's this impartation. Beck and I love being around other pastors, especially those who have gone before. And when they pray for us, we believe that there is an impartation. There is a gift from God. Sometimes it's just the gift of faith to continue on and to press on in the things of God. But this is what Paul says, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame. The thing is that you could have all these impartations about what God has given to you through other people, and you could have let it die off. But Paul says, for this reason, what's the reason? Faith. Because you have faith, you continue to stoke the gift. Because you have faith, you continue to stoke the gift. Because you have faith, you continue to stoke the gift. Because you have faith, you continue to stoke the gift. I'm asking you today, what is the gift that God has given to you that in faith you have been stoking and fanning into flame? Why? Because the spirit that has been given to you isn't timid and allows the things of God to die in your heart, but it causes it to be fanned into flame. There is power, there is love, there is self-control. The spirit enables us to have this on-fire gifts for him, and that is all coming because of faith. And he continues to say, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me in, in being so blessed and living comfortably for the gospel. No, no, because of suffering. See, I don't know if you came here today hoping to be encouraged, and I hope you are encouraged, but right now I'm also doubting that you'll be encouraged because I'm saying that a gift of God God gives you could cause you to suffer. So, yay, let's go. But what's the alternative? A dull, meaningless, flamed-out existence. The Bible is clear to show us that the suffering is for this season, and that there's a season of glory. But the season of glory is for those who have, by faith, gone through the season of suffering. I don't stand here saying that suffering is easy. There's a reason why it's called suffering. But I'm here because I think God is putting in my heart that this church will not move forward unless there are sufficient people that because of the faith that has been given to you are willing to fan into flame the gift that was given to you through the laying on of hands. There are other passages, I'm going to read them to you tonight, about how Paul talks to his protégés and he reminds them that you have these gifts because people have prophesied them and prayed them into your life. Some of you need to be here tonight because you don't even know what the gifts are that God has given to you. You need to know what God has said and what God has planned for you, not just in isolation by yourself, but with other believers who, who you can trust, who you love, who are coming alongside one another. I don't stand here as one who is holier or better than you. I stand here as one who is paid to bring these messages. I stand here as one who is figuring things out. I stand here as one who has been called by God to encourage and to lift you up. But we can all together pray for each other, have an 
impartation of what God is going to do. Come tonight prepared to receive from God a gift, a fresh gift. Maybe that is what is fanning the flame for you. Maybe you've allowed it to die. Maybe there are dreams that are dormant in your heart because of situations and circumstances. But timidity is sinful, man. I don't say this lightly. I don't say this as a condemning statement. I say this because God has been challenging me. There are things that I like to say I don't want to do. There are things that I often go, I, 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 I just don't want to do. I don't want to step into I don't want to go anywhere near that. And God constantly comes back and goes, is that faith or is that timidity? That's the language that God's been giving to me over the last few weeks. Church, there is no room for timidity in God's kingdom. Why? Because the spirit that has been given to you is not one of timidity, but it's one of power, of love, and self-control. We can get the band up this morning. Maybe part of the issue for you is that you're going like, what's in it for me? Well, we need to recognize where this is all coming from. Christ doesn't ask you to have skin in the game because he's some kind of like distant boss that's sitting in the clouds and telling us what to do. No, Jesus had skin in the game. When he came to earth as a man, he came to serve and he came to suffer. I was just reading this the other day and every single one of the four Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every single one of them has Jesus telling his disciples three times each that he is going to die. That's the only thing that is consistent across the four Gospels. Jesus came to die. He didn't come necessarily to preach great messages, to heal lots of people, even though he didn't. He came to die. The signs, the wonders, the messages were to help us to understand what the kingdom is like, but he also knew that the entry into the kingdom wasn't through any of those signs and wonders or messages. It was through his very death. When we talk about suffering, it would do us good to remember that Christ suffered for us. That his death means life for us. And then he defines what that life is. If you're feeling lost and you're wondering what life is all about, Come back to the definition of life that Christ has given to us. Follow Him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. There will be times of suffering and there will be times of great joy. There will be times of trial and there will still be great peace. There will be times of oppression, but yet at the same time there will be a hope that cannot be destroyed because we have a high priest Jesus, who continues to intercede on our behalf. 
when we recognize this, when I'm starting to recognize this, when I started to recognize that this relationship back then that I so wanted was actually so, so small, and it was worth letting go of in order to have that kind of faith, I haven't looked back. I haven't thought, man, I got the raw end of the deal and I think that there's still so much life ahead of me. Don't get caught up in things that are of this world that will not last. No spouse, no house, no business, no amount of wealth will last. But what will is our faith in Jesus, what we received in Him. So this morning, can we stand I just want to pray for you and I want to just encourage you one last time. Take the time. Come tonight. We're going to be praying for one another. We're going to be receiving uh, from uh, the gift that God wants to give to each one of us through the laying on of hands of one another. We'll be praying for every kid that comes tonight. I know it's a bit, it's going to be a little bit difficult. And, and yes, I understand that kids don't necessarily stay still. We get that. But you know what is better for them to experience it than for you to go, oh man, that was just too hard. We're bringing our son. And we're the flipping pastors that need to minister to people and at the same time keep an eye that he's not going off the rails. We're going to do it because we value him experiencing the power of God. Do you value the experience of hearing from God? Well, then you're going to have to make time for it. Sure, there are many other ways to do so. This is our way. This is our way of putting things out there. This is what we're going to try. This is what we're going to do. So I just want to encourage you. I believe that God is wanting to do something. When he put his word on my heart, I could not help but just feel so excited that God is about to explode something in your life. And yes, there are things that are going to change. There are things that are going to have to be let go of. But God is doing something new. He's unleashing something new in your life, in the life of our church. Dear Jesus, I pray that God, that I'll be more excited about you than anything else in this world. God, I pray that whenever I've made it sound like following you is so difficult, let me remember how difficult it was for you to leave heaven, to be here on this earth, to suffer at the hands of your creation. Help me to remember your discomfort. Help me to remember your trials. Help me to remember that what I'm going through is nothing compared to what you have done for me. But God, in the midst of that, I thank you. I pray to God that there'll be something ignited in us, that you have called us to a new purpose. You called us uh, to be part of your kingdom. You called us to be doing something fresh and something new this year. And so God, I pray that God, you prepare us, soften our hearts where we've gone hard, open our ears where we've gone deaf, open our eyes where we've gone blind. Help us to step into the things that you have for us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.